In Matthew 4, you have Jesus preaching the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand, kingdom of heaven. He's healing people. He's demonstrating that this reign is present among you. And then he goes up on the mountain and begins to preach his sermon, starting with the Beatitudes. I think the point of all that is to say the kingdom breaks into this world. It's of a different order. And yet we believe that kingdom is present among us in some inexplicable way. How do we see it? We see it in the church. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. For today's episode, we are delighted to welcome back the Reverend Dr. Chris Castaldo, who is a CPT fellow and serves as the senior pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville, Illinois. We have talked to Chris before on the podcast, and you can check out those episodes on the feed if you are interested. Today, we are talking to him about a new book that he has just put out with Crossway entitled The Upside Down Kingdom, Wisdom for Life from the Beatitudes. Let's get right into the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. We're excited today to have Chris Castaldo joining us. Chris is a pastor in Naperville, Illinois, and member of the St. Peter Fellowship of the Center for Pastor Theologians, and is the author of a a book that just came out called The Upside Down Kingdom, Wisdom uh, for Life from the Beatitudes. Chris, uh, thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be with you, Joel. So we've had Chris on the podcast before, kind of doing the, telling us a little bit about your life, a little bit about who you are, but want to just do a brief recap. I mentioned you're pastoring in Naperville, but remind us of your, your ministry context, how long you've been there, um, kind of how, how things are going in, in the life of the church these days for you. Yeah, I serve in Naperville, Illinois, western suburb of Chicago, just below Wheaton. Uh, I sometimes refer to it as the Achievatron. It's where you start preparing your child for the SAT at age six or where Park District Sports is a prelude to the major leagues, you know, very driven. And that reality has been significant in this project on the Beatitudes because it is, in a sense, the the parody of which Jesus' kingdom, as described here in Sermon on the Mount, is the reality. Mm. So... The so the, the idea for the 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 book the upside down kingdom your your idea of engaging with the beatitudes have have you had a like a long term interest in the beatitudes thinking one day I'm gonna write has it been coming out of the achievatron uh, that you've been that you've been in that that kind of was driving this what was the genesis of the book yeah it was it was about a year into the the pandemic. As a pastor, struggling like all of us were, um, wondering what does faithfulness look like? You know, someone has said mm-hmm. pastoral ministry is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. And these last few favorite. years have had a rather thin <laughs> absorption rate. Um, so I'm reading the Beatitudes, and there I find the solvent for my fear and anxiety. And in due course, that led to a preaching series and then eventually a manuscript. 
So this really came out of like your own personal soul work, life with God. How do I shepherd God's people? And the Beatitudes were speaking to you. Yeah, particularly providing me with freedom and liberation from from fear. Of course, we know Mm. as pastors, we have a front row seat to all of the, the anxieties and depressions of our people. Uh, it was, I think, of the statement by Michel de Montaigne, who said, my life has been full of terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. It's the sense that catastrophe will befall me at any time. Mm. And as I wrestled with that in my own life and saw our people wrestling with it, I realized that the, the Beatitudes provide an antidote for that. And similarly, the problem of outrage, um, these these years full of um, animosity, pulling the rhetorical pin out of the hand grenade and lobbing o- over the fence. Um, what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to have meekness? What does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness sake? These lessons have addressed a real need, and that's mm. why I felt it was important to write this book. So you're pastoring your church you're you're reflecting on the beatitudes i i was i was really struck reading back through it it's a, it's the first time i'd kind of gone a, a deeper engagement with the beatitudes in a, in a number of years i preached through and probably mm-hmm. i would guess 2014 15 16 somewhere in that range but but reading them now on this side of of 2020 on this side of the pandemic and reading your your book kind of it just there were things about it that that just struck me differently given the context that yeah. that we're living in. And you've alluded to this already, but take us in, Chris, if you would, to ways that you felt kind of compelled by the Beatitudes in light of our current cultural context, in light of the pastoral ministry that you're involved with. In what ways do you feel like it's captured your heart in, in, in new ways in the writing of this book, in this time, in this place? In this cultural moment, we think of the person who believes differently from us, who approaches public life differently, and there's it's a zero-sum game. One person's right, one person's wrong. Uh, and we often approach those conversations in a way that we we must not only win the argument, but, but we need to denigrate the other person. And, and I saw that unfolding in our community. And I started to reflect, what does it mean to be full of grace and truth? Uh, what, what does Jesus say about himself and his people? What does he say about his kingdom that challenges this ethic? Uh, Crossway has done a marvelous job in the cover art, and, and that actually speaks to this question, because there you have the kingdoms of this world depicted on the top with a, a certain king holding a sword. You know, he's advancing like Constantine of old uh, with aggression, even violence at someone else's expense. And that's contrasted by Jesus, who has in his hand a nail scar, the Lamb of God who gives himself for others. And so it's, it's this vision of sacrifice, this cruciform life. What would it look like for us to take that seriously? Uh, and to approach our our families, our jobs, our communities in such a way as to showcase that sacrificial love. Yeah, I was struck by the chapter where, you know, 
some of what you were just narrating on the chapter uh, comes out of the chapter on meekness, where you talk about Constantine specifically and contrast this um, caricature, I guess you could say, of the kingdom of heaven as enacted through coercion and even violence. Um, and that is, I think, a weighty thing in our cultural moment for us to grapple with. Um, and I and I think you also uh, mentioned in that chapter that there's a complicated legacy of the church where there are, and I think it's really, and I really appreciate the way you phrase this, there's really important um, movements of mercy in the church's history that do embody this vision of the Beatitudes on the one hand, but also a history of, and I don't think it does us any good to pretend it's not there, a history of violence that's associated with uh, the church and um, wrong turns mm -hmm. and perversions into that violence, you know, you describe muscular Christianity. I wonder if you could just unpack maybe that chapter for us a little bit or how it relates to the, the cultural moment that we're in today. Yeah, a central part of the conversation now concerns the use of power. How do we exercise power appropriately as Christians so that it's it's not at someone else's expense, so that it doesn't demean someone? And uh, it was this summer, we were just talking earlier about my trip to Italy. I was in Naples when I encountered to an the, image. To the homeland, we should say. Right? To the homeland, that's right. <laughs> uh, the, Naples is famous for its street art. And um, mm. there I saw a bust of Batman. Inside of his chest was the sacred heart of Jesus. I thought, isn't that interesting? And the more I thought about it, I realized this is a depiction of post-secularism. You know, we, we live in a secular world. Um, God doesn't have access to many of our public places. and yet. Um, it's post-secular in the sense that the human heart is longing for the divine. We, we crave transcendent. And this picture captured that. Batman is the ultimate secular hero. He doesn't have a supernatural power. He has a utility belt with a grappling hook, right, and, and other uh, bags of tricks. Um, and yet in his heart, there is something real, something that re relates to the living God. It's in this piece, the heart of Jesus. And I thought, you know, isn't that where many evangelicals find themselves right now with a heart for Jesus? And yet, and here's the point, the way we approach public life resembles Batman, the man of yes. vengeance, the man of anger, more than it reflects the heart of Jesus. And this is what the Beatitudes is addressing directly. Um, the poor in spirit, the the meek, um, those who mourn. There is a downward trajectory in which we encounter God and, and where we are able to embody and extend his power to the world. The I, I was also struck by the the chapter on on meekness and um really found myself as I was reading through it, just pausing and and pondering and um, the title of that chapter is Gentleness in a Hostile World. And I wondered, Chris, could you talk to us about how you understand the relationship between gentleness, meekness, 
passivity? How should that shape the way that we think about the Christian presence in the world? What is our role in the world? There are so many implications for thinking about the gentleness of Jesus as a primary facet of his way of being that I think would have very significant implications for the way we think about how to relate to the world around us and what our role is in the world. So could you talk to us about that from your perspective? Yeah. The legacy of Jesus is his sacrificial love. Uh, It's not like the the heroes of this world, Nimrod, a mighty hunter before God, the Lord. Um, that's the pattern that we in the world look to. That's the the mode in which we operate. Um, the example I give in the book is of Jackie Robinson. I had the mm-hmm. privilege of pastoring one of Jackie's teammates. Lee Fund was the pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So I got to talk with Lee, and Lee explained what it was like to play with Jackie. And uh, said that Lee was actually in the locker room when Branch Rickey, the general manager, came in and explained to Jackie the harsh realities that he would face on the field. Pitchers will throw fastballs at your head. The, the fans will yell all manner of obscenity about you. Are you ready to face that, Jackie? And he said, yes. And then after that conversation, uh, Lee asked him, what motivates you to do this? Uh, they 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 won't sit beside you on the bus. Lee was one of the few players who did. I mean, everywhere you turn, Jackie, you're you're experiencing this horrible treatment. And accordingly, Jackie's answer was, "I belong to Christ. My Savior suffered and died for me." This is the untold story of Jackie Robinson. He mm. he was serious about taking up his cross and following Jesus. And because that's true, because of what Jesus did for me, I have the privilege. Of, of following him here and now in, in baseball. So I, I think it's that example that we see in Jesus, in, in some of his saints. And um, I think to your question, Joel, I think what it means now is we, we yield. What does it mean to inherit the earth? We, we yield to the other person now in anticipation of that great day when Christ will return and bring forth justice. Now, that doesn't mean that we roll over and play dead. It doesn't mean we crawl into a fetal position and suck our thumb. We're, we're supposed to be prophets. In fact, the last beatitude says that. We're, we're like the prophets of old. Mm. But mm. the way we proclaim truth, the way we engage the conversation is categorically different from the way of this world. It's not like Nimrod, Constantine, and all, all of the other assertive leaders. It's like Jesus. Yeah, I, I was. I hadn't heard this about Jackie Robinson before. I, I, I'd not heard how deeply rooted he was in his faith, and and the way that that really caused him to to see his vocation in doing what he did. And, and I think what's interesting is, you know, I he didn't yield, right? He he was very strong in what he did. But he didn't take up the weapons of those around him because to do so would be to lose the battle. Right? Had he yes. taken up the weapons of the people around him, he would not have been able to to make the impact that he yes. made. And I, I think that is a beautiful picture of the the church's calling is is not to 
uh, be a, a passive presence in the world, but it is also not to take up the weapons of the world. And in that is the dichotomy of the strength and weakness that yes. we are yes. we are called to live out. Yeah, so that's, I, I that's thought a, that you beautifully illustrated that. Yeah, thank you. I, and I like the way you said that. We're, we're not yielding in such a way as to enable injustice, right. but we are trusting God in the midst of the injustice to deal with it. Mm. And we're not taking matters into our own hands. We're not retaliating. And my right. fear is that, that that's how we tend to respond today. If we see some kind of wrong, uh, it's up to us as a, a matter of righteousness to, to make it right. Well, not all of the wrongs are going to be made right here and now. Right. I think this is why Jesus talks about uh, mercy after talking about righteousness, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then after that comes, blessed are the merciful. It's because if, if one gets so focused on justice, mm. it's not long before that becomes your besetting sin. You know, mm. and uh, justice must be expressed, but it has to be informed by mercy. The, it's not a zero-sum game. The, the two go together. I, I think that's a, a the tension that we're trying to navigate as the church today. It, I think that really captures it so well of, you know, really living out the the calling that we have as followers of Christ to be people of justice, but not rely upon the mechanisms of, of justice that are often provided for us. And because exactly what you're saying, I think is right. And this is why it's an upside down kingdom, right? Because it doesn't conform to the patterns of the world around us. Even if we're talking about the same word justice to do that through the right side up, kingdom, so to speak, is to go wrong. To do that through the upside down kingdom is to follow the way of Jesus. Yeah, and that raises the question, I suppose, what do we mean by justice or righteousness? Of course, these words are translating the same root word in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Um, And that's an interesting conversation. Uh, I suggest that there are three essential movements, sequential movements. It's first our righteousness before God, what we call our doctrine mm-hmm. of justification. Uh, we receive his favor, made children of God. But it doesn't stop there. We then have the internal renewal by the Spirit, what we call sanctification. So if the first is righteousness to us, the second is righteousness in us. But it goes further still in that the Lord extends his hand of mercy through us into the world. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, the the vision of the prophets was so the vision of the whole Bible, but we, you know, the, particularly the prophets by bringing protection to those who are vulnerable, caring for widows, a very practical extension of the kingdom into the world. It's, it needs to be all three. And in our church traditions, we often focus on one, maybe two to the extent, the exception of the other. So we who are reformed focus on justification. And, and I think that's an essential starting point, but we can't stop there. Uh, the holiness traditions uh, have done so much careful thinking about what it looks like to work out one salvation. And then it's interesting. I did I did an interview recently, and I used the word social justice. Actually, what I said was a biblically chaste form of social justice. And the hmm. the host interrupted me. He said, "You realize many of our 
listeners now think you're a liberal just because you have used that phrase, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though I modified yeah. it. Uh, and I said, thank you for pointing that out. But there, there's no such thing as uh, a justice that doesn't go public. That's the vision of the new creation, you know. And so I'm suggesting it it must be all three. And and we pastors particularly have opportunity to consider how our church tradition thinks about those three movements and how we can adequately capture a vision for all three in our teaching and preaching. Hey, everybody, just a quick preview of our annual theology conference here at the Center for Pastor Theologians, which we will host in Chicago on October 23rd to 25th. The evangelical tradition places the sermon at the center of church life. But what is our theology of preaching? Does it root the sermon in the miracle of God's word proclaimed or in human persuasiveness and personality? In our day, preaching is easily unmoored from its biblical, theological, and historical anchors. Too often, it has become a tool of celebrity. We have seen pulpits and preaching taken captive by political and pragmatic ideologies. We believe that the church must recapture the Apostle Paul's vision of preaching, preaching that comes not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that our faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This work will move us beyond homiletical technique. It will challenge our confidence in our own capacities and call into question methods that have subtly shaped our vision of the sermon and elevated human power. Church leaders must remind ourselves, again, that we are, first and foremost, servants, both of God's word and of God's people. We invite you to join us at the Center for Pastor Theologians 2023 conference, Power and the Pulpit. Recovering a Theology of Preaching. We'll be helped by speakers such as Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, Matthew Kim, Nicole Martin, Kevin Van Hooser, Jeremy Treat, Jennifer McNutt, special guest Mike Cosper, Caitlin Beatty, JT English, Trig Johnson, Jim Samra, Eric Redman, and a whole bunch of others. It's going to be a great conference where we will gather together to seek wisdom and share insight about this important act that we do as pastors and as the church every week. Once again, we invite you to join us for the CPT conference power and the pulpits. You can learn more and sign up to secure your spot at cptconference.com. Something that's striking to me, and I guess perhaps just personally I've been reflecting on, I mentioned to you, Chris, and kind of our emails preparing for this, that uh, my wife Shelby and I are working on memorizing our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So this has been just kind of churning in my head for a number of months. And I'm just so struck by um, the way the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular are not just kind of like one-off platitudes that Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry, but actually are reflected in other parables and other aspects of his teaching. And prophecies about himself that he cites um, from the from the Old Testament and all of these things. Um, 
And, you know, just the, the first will be last and the last will be first, you know, among the Gentiles, uh, the, those who would be leaders among the Gentiles lorded over them and dominant on, there's this domineering, domineering, um, you know, it's almost I, it's funny when you said like the right side up kingdom, Joel, um, it doesn't feel right to use that, but by right. kind of the world's estimation, that's what it is, is that the powerful are on top and the weak are subdued or the lesser are subdued and uh, used as it were. Um, and this reversal of that just pervades Jesus's ministry. And um, I guess I'm, I'm struggling to find a question in here. It's, it's uh, just a lot of this, Yeah, Zach, go ahead. Think go about ahead. Love your enemies. I mean, that's another yes, example correct. of what you're describing. Uh, I mean, I have difficulty loving my friends. Jesus tells mm-hmm. me to love my enemies. This is remarkable. How do we do it? Well, th- this is Philippians 2, only in Christ. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider right. equality with God something to be exploited. It's that downward trajectory. Mm-hmm. So you guys have heard this before because we've been friends for a long time. But I describe this in terms of the upsilon vector, uh, mm-hmm. this helplessly esoteric sounding phrase that's really wonderful. <laughs> Imagine the upsilon or the U or a horseshoe. That's the trajectory of our life. We follow Jesus going downward like the kernel of wheat that, that falls to the ground. And there we dwell in the valley. And we cry out to God, and in due course, he lifts us out by his grace in consummate Mm -hmm. victory. And what I suggest is that's not only true in conversion, it is the overall experience and contour of our life. Every day, Mm -hmm. we reach the end of ourselves, or we ought to, in some way or another, Uh, but we're not left to to wither uh, in discouragement. We encounter Jesus who, who in his inexplicable grace lifts us out in resurrection power. Yeah. I think that uh, to help. follow. Go ahead. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah. I was going to f- follow up on that like this, because going back to your previous comment about the reform tradition and holiness traditions and this and that. And I think there's a certain, you know, I have thoughts about this, but I'm interested to hear what you would say. There's a certain um, character assumption over uh, emphasis, perhaps, that some might associate um, reformed traditions with being overly heady and forensic in their understanding of that tension between justice and righteousness or something like that. And then there's that on the one hand, maybe we get that from Paul and then from the Jesus tradition or the synoptics, we get this emphasis on, on justice and the public dimensions of faith. Um, how would you respond to that, um, perhaps assumption about the Paul on the one hand and the gospels on the other? How do you see that as being, uh, perhaps accurate, interact, accurate, or are they balancing each other out or are these, these, is this tension present in both parts of the New Testament? Yeah, I think that idea is is central to both visions, what Paul mm-hmm. conveys as well as the gospel writers, uh, but they bring different emphases, you're right. Mm-hmm. And I think we Reformed at times have overemphasized, or I won't say overemphasized, have not appreciated the fully the work of the Spirit. Now, I don't think that is true of Calvin or the Reformers. No. My work yes. was on Peter Martyr Vermeule. I, I think they were very, I mean, there's a reason, for example, why 
Calvin in his institutes addresses sanctification before justification. He, he's mm. making the point. This is essential, right? Um, but but more recently, we in the name, we now church at large, in the name of Reformed theology, I think have sometimes been so nervous about mm. works righteousness that we have overemphasized the forensic. You know, there's this there's this version of gospel-centered ministry which says we can do nothing. Uh, all we can do is hear the gospel and believe and trust. And there's really no place for the the living out of righteousness in practical ways. And I don't think that does justice to the, the teaching of Calvin and Reformed theology. Uh, and a way to get at this is to ask this question, is God pleased with our good works? There are many who would hesitate to say yes, because we're sinners. Mm-hmm. Calvin didn't hesitate to say yes. Mm-hmm. Calvin said, our good works done in Christ are pleasing to the Father because they are buttressed. They are augmented by his perfection. It's a little bit like when your child brings you a crayon drawing. It brings pleasure to you. Is it a work of art that's going to hang on the wall of a gallery? No, but it's pleasing to you because it comes from your child. When we serve God in Christ, he is pleased precisely because we are in Christ. I, I want to um, kind of connect this to a, a, a line you have in the introduction that I, I was really struck by. Um, where you're talking about kind of the, the Beatitudes are countercultural. They challenge mm-hmm. the ideals of our society today. But then you have a line that says, uh, by excavating the attachments of our soul, the Beatitudes reveal the pernicious lies we have internalized while simultaneously portraying the life God attends, uh, intends for his people. That, that line, excavating the attachments of our soul, I have double underlined here. <laughs> and, and that, I think as I was reading through your book and then kind of reflecting on the Beatitudes while I was doing so, I, I was just experiencing that in a different way of that sense of excavation of the word of God going in and doing something to me, the intent of which is that I would be different, that I would, that I would live this out differently. Not, not just that, that I would have platitudes now and, and kind of have some stuff for a poster on my wall, but it's to change me. Um, so my, my question for you, Chris is one, how have you experienced this in your own life in writing this book? the kind of excavation of the attachments of your soul. And then two, in your pastoral work, how, how have you seen the Beatitudes at work in your congregation? In your particular context, you talked about the achievement of your your the area that you live in. Have you seen the Beatitudes doing this work in your people's lives and in your own life? The Beatitudes are convicting, and they should yeah. be. That's the effect it, it ought to have. Um. I liken it to the dredging of a river. I saw a program once where they send these units down to the bottom of a river in order to clean it out. It scrapes the riverbed. I thought, my, if this river had feelings and emotions, it'd be crying right now. But that's what's necessary in order for anything to grow in that river. And so it is for us when we read the Beatitudes and take them seriously and meditate on it, it addresses the illicit attachments in our heart Uh and purges us. And that can be painful um, but it's good. It's necessary. So how has it affected me? Um, 
Actually, I've, I've learned a lot from you, Joel, about Bonhoeffer's appropriation of the Beatitudes and the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount. And yeah. um, some books that you recommended taught me that it was at Finkelwalde, uh, the, the Seminary for the Confessing Church, where Bonhoeffer established the Sermon on the Mount as the curriculum, the core curriculum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was intentional because in the face of Nazism, the, the, the temptations were so great the threat of Hitler confronted them at every turn, much like social media confronts us with temptation at every turn. And Bonhoeffer said, the only way we can stand against this threat is to go deep. And the portion of scripture that gets us there is the Sermon on the Mount. And so this idea of living life together, of having a friend with whom I can honestly confess my sins, who has permission to ask me questions and speak into my life, so that my heart is open so that this truth is able to do business with my soul. I have found that essential. And uh, so very practically, uh, our LTF or local theologian fellowship that's supported by the Center for Pastor Theologians has been one tangible way in which that's happened, gathering with other pastors from Naperville to, um, to have that conversation. And yeah, then here in our church, we have sought to promote community uh, over against the alienation and, and isolation that so many have experienced these last few years. Um, that has been a source of healing. That has been the way of righteousness for us. And, and to, to follow up on the, the Bonhoeffer comment and, and context, he, he was doing exactly what you were just talking about doing a little bit ago, this you know kind of Lutheran tradition in which the Sermon on the Mount was viewed as creating such an ideal that we could never meet that it only it convicts us of sin but doesn't really call us to any kind of action it, it was viewed more as a, a a vision that we could never do mm-hmm. and because we can never do it therefore we can be aware that we're that we're sinners right so but what Bonhoeffer is saying is the Exactly the opposite is the case. What Jesus is narrating here is the life we're called to live as his disciples. This is this is the life that we are called, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd be able to live this out. And I, I think we struggle with the Beatitudes because we still maintain that kind of, well, it's an ideal, and yeah. it's kind of a perfectionism, and we're we're concerned about that perfectionism. And so I, I think you're you're just very helpfully calling the church back to the reality of, no, this is what Christ is narrating a disciple looks like. He's yeah. not setting up an unachievable ideal. He's narrating life in his kingdom. So maybe to put it back to you, as I'm thinking through this kind of, uh, our are the Beatitudes livable or are they just this thing that's an ideal? And you, you, you argue throughout the book that it's something that we're called to, something we're called to live into. It is radical. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, the essayist, once said, Through, throughout courtrooms in our land, we have the Ten Commandments displayed, but nowhere do we see the Beatitudes on the mm. wall. <laughs> and mm. I think the reason mm. is because it's so countercultural. Like, how yeah, do you yeah. live this out? Um, one of the most interesting places I visited in Italy was the, the home of the Waldensians, 
up in Torre Pelice, the Piedmont area. So I'm doing some research on Italian Reformation, met with a scholar there, and went to the caves where they would gather and read the Bible by candlelight because it was illegal to read the Bible in the vernacular for so much of their history. Um, and in that place, some of them gave up their lives. They were martyred. Uh, the Inquisition found them and they, they, they broke branches and burned them on fire and, and uh, put, sent the smoke into the cave. So we went to that very place. And, you know, just two weeks earlier, I, I was at the Vatican looking up at the gilded ceilings of Pope Alexander VI. I'll tell you what, you could, you could keep all the gold leaf uh, ceilings. Uh, bring me to that cave where these people mm. sang to the Lord together. Uh, to your question, Zach, um, they took the Beatitudes literally. This scholar told us they would go mm. from town to town and preach, even though they were in danger. Nevertheless, they were compelled to tell others. And as they were being chased out of town, they would sing the Sermon on the Mount. They, they had put it to music, and that was their tradition <laughs> to remind them of who they are. This is what the kingdom looks like. Right, everyone who is li to live a holy life will be persecuted. This is normal. So I think we ought to take it literally to that extent. If you're considering whether we are supposed to have that posture, that willingness to give up our life in the name of Jesus, the the answer is an emphatic yes. And and I think the the radical the radicalness of the Beatitudes. It, it, if your assumption is the, the right side up kingdom, again, to use that, that phrase, if your assumption is that's the way of the world, and now we got to figure out how to live out the Beatitudes in light of that given of the right side up, then it does seem radical. But if the kingdom is this kingdom of the cross, the, the kingdom of, of take up your cross. It, it, it's radical in the sense that it calls for a, a dramatic shift in our lives, but it's not radical in, in the sense that it aligns us with what is actually true, right? With what, right. what is actually the way of God in the world. And when you when we seek to align ourselves with that, then the resources of God's spirit of the pathway of following Christ, as those become more and more a part of us, then it seems to me that Beatitudes is the way it ought to be. Yes. And, and, and ought to be the way that we live. Yeah. And I think Matthew's context bears that out. The Beatitudes, of course, appear in Matthew 5 and then also in Luke 6. In Matthew 4, you have Jesus preaching the kingdom. Repent, for the mm -hmm. kingdom is mm -hmm. at hand, kingdom of heaven. And uh, he's healing people. He's demonstrating that this reign is present among you. And yeah. then he goes up on the mountain and begins to preach his sermon, starting with the Beatitudes. And I, I think the point of all that is to say the kingdom breaks into this world. It's of a yes. different order. And yet we believe that uh, the kingdom is present among us in some inexplicable way uh, and, and will continue to advance in our midst, even though we don't see it with the naked eye. How do we see it? We see it in the church. So there ought to be ecclesial implications, you know, um, uh, 
dare I get a little bit cheeky, uh, you know, pelvic yes, thrusting please. worship bands that <laughs> that have music that sounds kind of like the Lego theme song, everything is awesome. You know, um, <laughs> preachers who sit on bar stools and give the equivalent of, of Letterman's top 10 or, or whatever the late night host equivalent is today. Um, that falls short. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that we have to limit ourselves to one style of music. No, no, no. But there ought to be a, a sobriety, a gravity, as it's been said. The most frightening piece of real estate on the face of the earth is the two square feet of space behind the pulpit from which the servant of God proclaims the word of God. I think the Beatitudes speak to some of those liturgical issues. Mm. That's a great word. Uh, Chris, can you, we need to wrap up our, our time here, but that that leads to uh, a, a final question I want to put to you is, is you reflect on your vocation as a pastor uh, and the way that the Beatitudes have shaped your vision of what it means to be a, a shepherd of God's people. Could you just share some thoughts with us on that uh, and encourage uh those of us listening who are who are pastors in our own vocation to to shepherd God's people it's in the hard painful places where we encounter the presence of Christ um and so we have here at New Covenant a fellow who just lost his wife uh far younger than anyone would have imagined he's altogether disoriented now I, the privilege of sitting down with him and um He's asking, where is God? What do we say to that? There, there are some intractable problems, uh, a term, terminal illness, losing a child, losing a loved one. And I think the, the Beatitudes provides an answer to that. It's not an easy answer, and it's one that has to be unfolded carefully. The story I tell in the book is of um, when my son, who has hemophilia, learned how to ride a bicycle. Uh, when he was born with, with severe hemophilia, a condition in which his blood doesn't clot, we put a rubber swimming pool in our living room uh, so that he could learn to walk. Because if he fell on the floor, that would have likely sent us to the ER. So now fast forward years later, I'm teaching him how, how to ride a bike. <laughs> so he, there's he's got his helmet on, his knee pads, elbow pads, his new shiny bike with the bell he gets on. And I'm behind him with outstretched arms, ready to throw myself onto the ground beside him as a paternal pillow, right? cushion his fall. And so we go up and down the sidewalk, and uh, he fell a few times, thankfully, not too badly. Afterward, we're walking home, I'm, I'm holding his hand, and it was as though God said, if you loved your son that much, to, to give yourself for him in that way, how much more do you suppose I love you? And the answer is that God demonstrated his love by giving his son to die for us, a Savior who is alive now. I think that's the message that needs to be the leading edge in our pastoral ministry, a message that we need in the hard places, especially in this cultural moment. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for uh, the gift of your labor of, of writing the book, and uh, grateful for you and the partnership we have through the CPT and blessings to you and the ministry there in Naperville. Thank you, Joel. So I just want to, before we fully sign off, I want to remind everyone just of the title of the book, The Upside Down Kingdom. Uh, can, do, can you give me the subtitle real 
quick. Wisdom Chris. for Life from the Beatitudes by Crossway. Thank you. Uh, yes, and it's published by Crossway, available Amazon and all the other places where they also sell books. So thanks, Chris. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you appreciated this episode, could I ask you to consider sharing it online with others, rating the show on Apple Podcasts, or even leaving a review? Uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps others hear about the show. The CPT Podcast is a production of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The host for today's episode was Joel Lawrence. Our producer and editor is Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.